We're in Judges chapter 11, continuing on our series. This is the penultimate, second to last sermon on the book of Judges. And we're in Judges chapter 11. And we see the people of Israel caught once again with their backs up against the wall. I wonder if you've ever had your back caught up against the wall, so to speak. Uh, or as they say, between a rock and a hard place. Um, you're, you're stuck. And there's no way, a situation that you're not entirely sure that you can wriggle your way out of, whether it's with uh, a conflict with a coworker or the possibility of losing your job or the reality that you've lost your job. Um, we all run into these stuck places here and that once in a while. Um, and at the end of chapter 10, we see that, quote, the Ammonites were called to arms. That means not their physical arms. They took up their arms. They took up uh, weapons, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. Now, the Ammonites are the people from the east, Right there on the easternmost, it's almost like Israel sort of uh, goes down this strip of land in the ancient Near East, and the Jordan River sort of uh, dissects it, right? It goes right down, uh, there's about two-thirds of Israel on the one side, and then about one-third on the east side. And um, the Ammonites are over to the east, right? And there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little river called the Jabbok that runs between Northern Eastern Israel, which is called Gilead, and then Ammonite territory. So here's the problem. Um, the Ammonites have crossed the Jabbok, they've crossed into Gilead, and they've gathered their people together. And so the people of Israel, they sound the alarm, and the tribes gather together near Mizpah, a city in that region, and everybody's lining up for war. To be clear, this is an existential threat for Israel. If there's ever been a time to seek the Lord, it is now. The leaders of the nation are living right here and now in this tension, right? Between quietness and trust on the one hand and prayerless pragmatism on the other hand. I love that we have multiple babies in one congregation that at the same time are going out. That's fantastic. Like, seriously, it's like... it's. I always prefer this uh, as a preacher because it's like life is happening here, right? Uh, out of the ba mouths of babes, uh, you have ordained praise because you're your foes. Um, but the leaders of Israel are caught between prayerless pragmatism and trust. Will they grab for control and try to solve their situation with human cunning? Or will they wait? On the Lord. Uh, perhaps you've felt this tension in your own life. Uh, maybe you've had a particularly difficult relationship, maybe with a coworker or an old friend, or maybe a particularly troubled marriage, and prayerless pragmatism said, well, this can't be fixed. This person's never going to change. I'm never going to change. This situation is never going to change. I can't figure out a way to make it better. Uh, anybody ever been up late into the night, staring at the ceiling and tossing and turning uh, and trying to, like, looping on ideas in your own mind to try to fix a situation? Anyone? Yeah? Uh, yeah, I never do that at all. Um, 
you know, how do I fix the problems that my kid is facing? Or, um, or how do I sort out this financial issue? I see all the things here. I've got to, I got to come up with some magic here and now. Um, I'm in this conflict at work. We're behind schedule, and I've just, I've got to cook something up. All right, it's time to perform, circus boy. Um, prayerless pragmatism is exhausting. Personally, I like to wash mine down with an ice-cold glass of anxiety. Um, But then there's this other still, small voice in the back of my head, right? Uh, And it's, I think that's the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Actually, I know that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is quietly saying, just wait and trust. Or as my dad used to say, think smart little thoughts and leave the rest to God. Chapter 11, the leaders of Gilead slash Israel, they're caught in this tension. Will I try to control it myself? Will I resort to prayerless pragmatism? Or will I wait and trust? And chapter 10, verse 18, tells us that tragically, like so many of us, so much of the time, they choose option one. The leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Never mind what the Lord wants to do. Who's the man that we will call to this task? They don't talk to God. They talk amongst themselves. They don't talk to God. They talk to themselves. Anybody been there? Now do you see why I've prayed that this has been a convicting passage this week? Um, They looking on their own understanding and search for a leader who will deliver them, and they find that leader in Jephthah, the Gileadite. And right off the bat, we learn that Jephthah was, quote, a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. So he was extremely competent in battle and was valued for that, but despite that, Jephthah was treated as an outsider in his community because he was considered illegitimate. It's also worth noting, prostitution in the ancient Near East was almost always connected with Canaanite idol worship, specifically Ashtoreth worship. So it's likely that, in a sense, the elders of Israel are turning to the offspring of their own idolatry in this. That'll preach, but I just can't prove it, (laughs) right? Um, So you can just chew on that, food for thought. Uh, But in any case, Jephthah grows up, and he's forced to leave town because his half-brothers think that he's a threat to the inheritance. So he goes to the land of Tov, um, and that's east of Israel, adjacent to Ammonite territory. And to quote verse 3, Worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. This is what we do not aim for in our youth group. But, um, <laughs> but all, in all seriousness, Jephthah proves to be this charismatic leader. And he draws all the malcontents and riffraff from the surrounding areas. And they make a little band. And these guys go out with him. And that means they become a raiding party. That's what it means. It doesn't mean like they go out of the house with him. It means they go out probably down into Ammonite territory and raid and get plunder and serve as mercenaries and hired hands for whatever. 
and live as this band of outlaws. It's the wild, wild east. Um, now, we can assume that Jephthah and his cronies had some measure of success in this endeavor because when the elders of Gilead are in crisis, he's the first guy they turn to. They don't look to God. They say, who is the man that can deliver us? Ah, I know. How about that Jephthah guy? He's gifted. He doesn't really fit the bill of the things that we like, but he's gifted. He's an obvious choice. He's competent. He's a mighty warrior. He's charismatic. He's drawn this little army around himself. And in the negotiations, he proves to be quite clever. Our passage shows just how clever he is. The elders of Gilead come to him looking for a battlefield commander. That's all they want. They want someone who will deliver them the victory. And in a single conversation, first he like guilts them for rejecting him. And then he somehow uses that as capital and convinces them to make him more or less their full-time king. They go into this wanting a battlefield commander. They come out getting a king. He barters his way into the seat of power. He's clever. So to be clear, Israel's prayerless pragmatism gets them a leader who is competent, charismatic, and clever. I know we like alliteration here, um, but if you don't like alliteration, just get, he's good at his job, okay? Just take that. I was talking with Alex last night, and, and uh, I was like, competent, charismatic, and clever, and he's a British evangelical, so he loves this stuff too. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, but he's not called. And I was like, ooh! <laughs> That's right, though. Jephthah is not called by God. He's chosen by men, not by God. And that might seem like a huge problem. It might seem like we're failing to cross the T's and dot the I's. That's a huge problem when it comes to leadership of God's people. You are, church, we are way better off with leaders who are, uh, have major stuttering problems, who are terrified of crowds, who are the least charismatic people you've ever encountered than with people who are not called. Um, Jephthah is chosen by men. And this is a time in Israel's history when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And sometimes the obvious choice is not the right choice. Uh, anyone here play chess? Any chess players? Yeah, anybody? Not a ton of chess players. Come on, guys, this is Fox Chapel. You're supposed to play chess, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm a beginner at chess. Uh, I'm lucky if I kind of can see everything that's going on on the board. I always miss when, like, the queen is in the corner and then my piece ends get, end up getting taken out. So I'm lucky if I can anticipate the next move, right? But a good chess player will be thinking like three, four, maybe five steps ahead. They know that if I do this, the next person's going to do this, and then I'll do this, and then they'll probably do this, and then I can get right here and put them into check, and then they'll move this way and checkmate. It's already, the game's like playing out in their mind. Um, but, so what seems like an obvious move to me uh, might actually lead down the path to checkmate. And I can't tell the difference, right? I just can't comprehend the board. Um, now, here's the thing. 
uh, life is a lot more complicated than a game of chess. And no matter how competent or clever you are, in life, none of us can fully comprehend the board. I mean, come on, there's like seven or eight billion people on this planet. This is very complex. And uh, we can't really know what's going to happen next. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of dynamics at play in every single uh, decision that you and I make every single day. And so we may be able to make our five-year plan. We may be able to like ordain our next move, but we don't know how that's going to turn out. I'm not saying that five-year plans are bad or that planning is bad. I'm all for five-year plans. But if we are prayerless about this, if we don't ask first, that's a huge problem. Because really the prayer is more valuable than the plan. When we try to play all by ourselves, we inevitably miss things, and we miss crucial things. Uh, Jephthah has the obvious leadership qualities. He even seems to be kind of devout, right? He brings the Lord into the conversation with the elders of Gilead. And then in verse 11, it says that once he's agreed to lead Israel, he, quote, spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This is like a covenant-making ceremony. Jephthah makes this, like, solemn sort of covenant thing. So he's not totally irreligious, but he's also not the man that God has called to deliver his people. Uh, The elders of Gilead, they give lip service to the Lord throughout the passage. They make this covenant ceremony with Jephthah at Mitzpah. But really, they want, what are they in it for? They want God to rubber stamp their decisions. The Lord is a part of a story here. He's in it. There's some God smattered in, but he's not writing the story. It's not his story. This isn't a story where God is the main character. Did you notice that? Um, And I think that's a problem. So I want to invite you all to reflect on your own story. Um, Does God, how does God feature in your story? Is God a part of your story? I guess that's a start. But um, would he win the Oscar for best director? Or would he be something more like supporting actor? Um, Is he uh, calling the shots or are you calling the shots and trying to get his blessing for it afterwards? Uh, Have you been following him or expecting him to follow you? The elders of Gilead expect God to follow them. And the outcome is honestly kind of a mixed bag, as it often is. Uh, Jephthah proves to be a competent, charismatic, and clever leader. We see his cleverness later on in the passage after ours. He does this brilliant negotiation with the Ammonites. He displays this incredible understanding of Israel's history. He goes to war and he wins. But at the same time, Jephthah makes some serious mistakes. We're going to see next week that it doesn't go so hot for his own daughter. I guess he wasn't the best family man. Um, And the nation ultimately ends up in another civil war. So on the whole, as I was looking at this, I was like, what do we make of this? Well, it could be worse. 
This passage is not saying that if you follow your own designs, your life will immediately crumble around you and turn into an utter disaster. And if we're, re- if we're honest, right, uh, we've all been living in this world for a while, we know that that simply does not happen. Maybe because God's gracious. Uh, you follow your own way, and sometimes that means that you get ahead in life. Maybe you are where you are right now because you're a self-made woman or man. You have really made it, and things have gone okay. Things are okay-ish for, Jeph- for Israel under Jephthah. But here's the thing. It could also be a whole lot better. It could be so much better. Uh, this is a mediocre story. But it's kind of boring. Don't you think it's boring? Like, nothing interesting happens. Did I just say that the story I'm preaching on is boring? But it's an outlier in the Old Testament. Remember, so far throughout God's story, we've seen God do some wild stuff. When the Egyptians pursued his people, he protected them with a pillar of fire. How cool is that? And then they're trapped at the Red Sea. They're, they've got water on three sides and an, armor, and an army coming at them on the other. And guess what? God's like, oh, I'm just going to part the water. And so they go through, and then the waters crash down on their enemies. Then they're out in the desert, and they're thirsty. And so God's like, hey, just take your cane, Moses, and tap this rock, and I'll make water come out of a rock. Uh, and then they're hungry. And he's like, oh, I'll just give you some bread from the sky. And then they come into the promised land, and there's like all these strong inhabitants with these huge walled cities. And God's like, I'll just walk around it and then yell. And I'll just make those city walls fall down. Uh, and then he stops the sun midday so they can battle longer. He throws their enemies into confusion time and time again. And then we get to the book of Judges, right? He defeats this powerful King Eglon using a left-handed, possibly a crippled man. Uh, He takes down the great general Sisera using an ordinary woman who drives a tent peg through his temple. This is like every middle schooler's dream Bible passage, right? And then he leads Gideon and his army of 300 men, who are, by the way, unarmed, to victory over 135,000 Midianites. God doesn't write mediocre stories. He does cool stuff. Uh, He has better plans than this. And this story is just mediocre. Uh, I can't really tell you what what God would have done with this story if they had, like, waited on him and trusted him. We don't know. We don't get to find that out. Um, But it would have been cooler than this. Uh, Now, we all live in a world that's kind of dog-eat-dog. Resources are limited, um, only the strong survive, as uh, my Alan Iverson shoes used to say, following Darwin, right? Um, and the competent, the clever, the charismatic, those are the ones who come out ahead. Uh, blessed are the competent. Blessed are the charismatic. Blessed are those who have it together, or at least can project the appearance of having it together. Um, And as long as we resort to our best thinking, as long as we resort to prayerless pragmatism, we will always be building castles in that kingdom. And so therefore, your life will always be vulnerable. Uh, You will always be insecure. 
you will always have sleepless nights ahead of you. Um, but, but God actually promises a, a better way. Um, whatever we may, a lot of you have wrestled, I think, throughout this series and as, as we read through Joshua and then Judges with just the violence, right? Uh, the conquest, the ban, the bloodshed. It seems like it's, uh, it's a bit of a theological issue that people wrestle with, right? Um, it's like, what do, I, what do I do with this? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you today. Congratulations. Um, but uh, I will say this, that uh, God does play ball with people and enters into the world uh, as it is. But the kingdom that he proposes and that he brings about, that he's in the process of bringing through Jesus, is something wildly different. Um, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God, which is this new, different kind of economy. Uh, where selfishness and scarcity are abolished. There's enough. You bring a basket of five loaves of bread and two fish, and 5,000 people are able to eat. Uh, And the blessed ones are the meek and the poor and the outcast. And everyone, especially the losers, are invited. Um... And the kingdom grows with this kind of organic power. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't be anxious about your life. Um, Look at the birds of the air, right? They're not storing everything up. They're not anxious about that, yet God feeds them because he loves them. And you're more valuable than they are to him. Or look at the lilies of the field. They're not straining and toiling and spinning, yet look how beautiful they are. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is, you know, today is blooming and tomorrow is burned up and thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall I wear or what shall I eat? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I, I really think that we sort of, I, as I read through it, the Gospels, um, and through the scriptures, I really resonate with Peter, because he sort of is half Jephthah and half kingdom of God. It's like he has like one foot in each throughout the Gospels, right? He has this, he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah in Mark 8, but he has this definite plan for how the Messiahship will go. And it looks something like Jesus walking into town and kicking butt. Um, It doesn't look like Jesus suffering for the sins of the world on a cross. And then in John 13, Jesus kneels down and he's washing the disciples' feet. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to wash your feet. I I should take care of you. I've got got this, Jesus. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And then at the end... Peter's like, I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, oh, Peter, you don't get it, do you? You're making your plans all the time. Uh, I'm telling you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And the Peters of this world are broken. Their, Their trust in their own competence, his trust in his own competence is shattered at the foot of the cross. And in the wake of that, Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me? 
empty-handed Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so friends, I pray um, that we would trust not in our own prayerless pragmatism, but that we would hear the call of the risen Lord um, and kneel at the foot of his cross and then rise with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the freedom that you provide by your gospel. Thank you for taking care of your kids. You love us, and um, if there's anyone here who is anxious and burdened about many things, uh, will you give us the grace um, to be free to cast those anxieties upon you, um, to share those maybe with with an, another person, a trusted friend or neighbor or a pastor or a, a home group leader or anyone, um, and to receive your care and your prayer. Will you make us a, pa- a church that grows by your organic kingdom power and not by the strength of our own plans? We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.